Welcome, everybody. I'm really excited to have our first guest speaker, a gentleman that I've worked with for many years now. He is, well, I'll give him the chance to introduce himself because uh, there's a lot of fun and cool things that he's done. And so if you can help me welcome my first speaker, Mr. Jerry Blackburn. Hi, Jerry. Hello, Jerry. How are you? Doing well, um, considering we, you know, we've been home for seven days. And yeah, and how are you guys? We're doing fine uh, under the circumstances, as you pointed out. I think that uh, I've always been considered an optimist. And even in these conditions, I, I tend to look at it look at it optimistically that we'll get through this and uh, we'll hopefully be better for it. Uh, it's going to test us in many different ways. Well, but, before uh, we, we you know get into that, would you mind telling us a little bit about who you are so the audience gets to know you? I've known you for, like I said, many years now, but I like the audience to sort of find out about who you are, where you came from, what's your background, and so forth. Well, thank you. Um, I'm an engineer uh, by trade and career. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, early on in my life to be supported by parents that saw the value of an education. And I went through the parochial school system here in Southern California. But my focus and my, my passion was science. I just loved the science and the problem solving that was associated with that. So because of that, I ended up developing uh, uh, a career path that prepared me for what I, which I didn't realize at the time, would be a marvelous career in the aerospace industry. When I started my secondary education, it was at the Don Bosco Technical Institute in San Gabriel, which was a unique institution for its time. This is in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. Uh, it focused on training young men for technical careers. And we had different discipline that we could choose from. And I chose the, uh, the field of metallurgy, which was uh, fascinating to me. Uh, the ability to uh, uh, manipulate and use metals in productive ways. It resulted in me getting a job with the North American Aviation Company in 1962 out in El Segundo. My first Two programs were the X-15 and the XB-70. The X-15, a rocket plane to space, the first rocket plane to space, and the XB-70, the world's first Mach 3 aircraft. And these were wonderful days of, of exploring this new technology, materials being my primary focus. I was able to... Uh, Work with some wonderful engineers, uh, men who had uh, come through the uh, Second World War and were now looking for new career paths and new challenges. And we had that. And I was right there at the forefront with all these wonderful guys as my mentors. And it turned out in uh, 1964 that the programs, the XB-70 program was canceled. And I had a new opportunity to move over to one of our other divisions working on this new project called the Apollo. Putting and building a spacecraft to take men to the moon. What a great, great job. So I uh, moved over to Downey and started working at the facility there working on uh, problems. Uh, probably the biggest problem I had at that time we were working on was too many of our boosters were blowing up on the pad and we needed to understand what was causing these failures. So I worked with a group to develop a technology called contamination control. The 
because we found that much of the problems and failures were contaminants that were in critical systems. So for the next several years on Apollo, we worked, and I worked as an engineer on staff, creating these incredible machines that would take our our nation to the moon. And then, uh, as time would have it, I progressed into management uh, later on the shuttle program. Of course, during this time, I was uh, also helping do some educational outreach programs for the company. And it started off with simply going to classrooms. Teachers would call up and ask if there was an engineer that could come and talk to them about what we were doing. I volunteered, and it was just wonderful. It was a fun time to talk to the students and the teachers about the programs and what we were doing. But it also gave me an appreciation for public education and the challenges that that many of the teachers were facing. And of course, about the same time, my family was growing. I had three children that were beginning to get into the public system. So it just seemed natural to continue helping support public education through these opportunities to lecture to the students and the teachers. But then I also had an opportunity to participate through a local school board. I ran for a position on the board and was elected. And it gave me some totally new insights into education challenges that we were facing. And about this time, one of the biggest ones was the technology. Technology that we were using every day at work, building spacecraft and, and creating solutions for complex technical problems. That technology was beginning to find its way to the public sector. So towards the end of the middle of the shuttle program, we finally had uh, some of this computer technology. And we were pretty comfortable with what we had developed. But I could see that there was also a need to transition this into the classrooms, into the teacher's hands, and the student's hands. And we needed to figure out and understand how that was going to work. Of course, we had some great pioneers along the way, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs with the Macs and the Windows platforms that helped facilitate that. But still, the technology was accelerating so fast that there was a need for a lot of help. And so we increased our outreach programs through the company. We started our Discover Engineering series of workshops whereby we actually brought students and teachers into our workplace and showed them how this technology was developed and how it worked. And then they, in turn, would take this back to the classroom with new perspectives and maybe some better skill sets to work with the students. So the, the career was a, almost a tandem career with both aerospace engineering from the commercial sector, but then this education outreach, and also about this time, I was... Uh, uh, recruited by some of the universities to come in as an adjunct professor to teach some of the uh, more advanced student programs. Uh, I taught at Cal State Los Angeles uh, University there. I taught at, uh, did some workshops at University of Southern California. And then eventually did some uh, management courses, uh, teaching management and leadership for the Boeing Company over at Cerritos College. Uh, locally. About the time I uh, got ready to retire in 2003, thinking that uh, it was going to be our time, my wife and I, to travel and just enjoy ourselves, but that only lasted for about a year, year and a half, and that, that was back to the, the challenge of educating and so I started a small company. My wife and I started a small 
not the challenge that they really thought it was for the classroom and that it really needed to be embraced and understood in a manner that would help make it a successful tool for not just the student but the teacher as well. And so we have been somewhat successful with our firm, our company, uh, with some programs and workshops that we've done around Southern California. And that brings us pretty much up to today. And uh, the, the new world, I, I just finished a, a conference call using the same technology that we developed uh, with a nonprofit uh, organization that I am on the board of directors for the Columbia Memorial Space Center in Downing. And once again, sequestering and isolation in today's world of technology is not nearly the problem it might have been 25 years ago. Because today that same technology keeps all of us connected. And I believe, and I think, is going to be one of the tools that will help get us through this new challenge. Well, thank you for sharing, Jerry. So I want to go back to something that you had said. You said that um, as you were doing the outreach, educational outreach, you noticed that technology was not the issue. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, please? Well, as I would go into the classrooms and talk to the students about uh, building spaceships and the program, the Apollo program going to the moon, it was not difficult at all to, to get students and teachers excited about the kind of work that we did with this technology. Although they were very uh, intimidated by it. Uh, we had some open houses at, at the facility where we would invite the public to come in. And I remember frequently comments afterwards that I would ask my staff about uh, how did the open house go and things like that. They would uh, comment that their family and the children that came and visited were just overwhelmed. And one comment I particularly remember was uh, one of my engineers that mentioned his young son said, wow, you must really be a genius to work here. And when he asked him why he said that, he said, well, all of this paper and these numbers and things on the board, I don't, we don't even know what they mean. And that's when I realized, yes, I imagine it would be very intimidating to uh, walk into uh, any research lab or, or place today and see what they're working on and realizing that uh, technology can be very challenging. It can, it can be overwhelming. But you have to remember that we were, we were actually, I'll say, growing up with it. I considered the time that I spent with the other engineers and people in the Apollo program, it was really a school. It was our school. We were learning how to solve all these problems of taking men to another world and going into space. And there were no real books on the shelves that had the answers. There were books that talked about processes and steps but we had to figure out the answers. And that's the problem-solving part. And that's when I began to realize that the technology and the technologies that we were designing and creating were merely tools. They were a means to an end, to an answer. And not the answer, an answer. Because there were many answers. There were also many questions. And I began to realize and see the importance of it was learning how to ask the right questions that became the real legacy of the aerospace industry and the work we were doing. The technology was just a tool. And tools change. 
was a time when there were craftsmen who could build shelters without hammers and nails and saws. In some cases they still do. But then as the tools developed, our success in that process got better. And the results became better. So when I would go to a classroom and I would, as a matter of fact, I, I had a request one time from a group of teachers that uh, said, could you help us solve a problem here? We have a real dilemma. We have just been given a budget from our school board of several thousand dollars and to go buy computers so that we can bring into the classroom. And we have been debating for almost a month now to whether we should get Macintoshes or should we get uh, Windows DOS platforms. Can you help us solve that problem? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I possibly can. Because you're going to choose either platform. They're just different shades of a different of the same color. You need to choose the platform that's going to serve the purposes that you have for using that technology. And in that particular case, the decision at that time was most of the schools and even some of the universities were using the Macintosh or the Apple platforms. But yet, when we get into the business world, they were on the DOS platforms, the Microsoft. But the Macintosh and the Apple products were simpler for them in the learning process. They were easier for the students. As a matter of fact, when I first introduced computers to my staff, I used the Macintosh platform because my engineers were as intimidated as anybody else with the new DOS platform. And so I got the Macintoshes and I gave them to the secretaries and they were the ones that integrated the technology into the workplace. But once the engineers began to see how the tool worked and how efficient it was and how it could make their lives so much easier, then they began to embrace it. And then it was just a case of stay out of their way and they will figure it out and evolve it. So technology, as it evolves, it evolves based on the need and the problems that have to be solved. You don't want to teach a technology just because it's the flavor of the month. You want to use the technology as the tool. A hammer will drive a nail, but so will a rock. So will a pipe. Any one of them can drive the nail. But one of them does it a little bit better for most applications. But in this case, it was the hammer that was the technology of the tool that survived and evolved. Thank you for that that response, Jerry. The uh, I, I feel like there's a lot of similarities in what you're saying during the time that you were um, working with Apollo. Similar in the sense that we're at a point where now we're being self-quarantined in our homes and people are starting to ask, what's the best website for my son or daughter to go to? What's the best site for me to use to educate my son or daughter? And I feel like we're at that point where, once again, there's no books that teach us how to, um, you know, self-educate, how to help our sons and daughters to become more self-directed learners. And so a lot of parents are asking, what's the solution here? And I feel like uh, we're turning to technology for that. You have any thoughts on on how technology can be helpful or possibly impede that progress? Well, you, you're right. As a matter of fact, my particular opinion on that right now is that this crisis, uh, this pandemic crisis that we're in, and this isolation, as I said earlier, I really believe is an opportunity. It's an opportunity.
opportunity for us to dis rediscover or discover as the case may be what these tools are capable of and my, my prognosis for the future is going to be that as people at home begin to turn to what they have available, which is going to be the computer, the laptop, or Kindle, or whatever it may be, as a device, it is the access to this incredible world of the internet out there, and to uh, social connections, uh, social media. Now, just like with the VCR, when the VCR first came out, what a wonderful tool. Um, most of us said, oh my gosh, I've got something now I can record the show. I, I'm not bound. I'm not bound by the, the limitations of the programmers on the prime networks to watch what shows I want. That they want me to watch when they want me to watch it. I can choose. So everyone runs out and buys a VCR. And you buy a bunch of uh, videotapes and you start recording. And I still remember a friend of mine who did this. And I was talking with her and I said, well, how's it working out for you with this VCR now? She says, oh, it's so wonderful. I have to, she was a teacher, by the way. She had to work during the day. But now she can record all of her soap operas. And she says, I go home now and I've got all my soap operas on videotape. And I said, really? And I said, and? And she says, well... I've got 45 hours of, of programs and I haven't watched any of them because I have no time to watch them. I'm too busy doing other things. <laughs> and with these VCRs had features and, and components. And they, most people never used one one hundredth of the features on that technology. But they used what worked for them. And even today now, we're in a world where our cable companies or satellite networks offer the DVR capability, but you only program or record just a fraction. And that's the message here. The internet as a tool in our homes during this crisis is an incredible window to the world. Uh, even the simple Kindle gives you the ability to have a library of millions of books that you can read and explore and look at, not counting the websites. Now, there is a cautionary note to all of this technology, though, and I would caution the parents, which I was doing 25 years ago when I was teaching them this technology, and that is, don't believe everything you see there. It's no different than the printed text. Just because somebody invested in ink and paper and bound it into a book and then gave it a title and put a name on it doesn't mean that it's gospel or truth or fact or anything else. It just means somebody was able to afford to print it and publish it and put it out there. The responsibility rests with parents to monitor what their children and what they themselves are going to explore on that wild, wonderful world of the Internet. Now, I can share with you one of my techniques that I do often in the research that I do for my books when I'm writing a book. There are certain websites that are very adept and simple uh, one of the ones I know is a common debate among educators is Wikipedia. Well, you can't believe everything you read. And Wikipedia is just, you know, it's, it's not reliable at all. Well, yes and no. I mean, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't trust everything that I read in Wikipedia. But by the other token, it is a great quick way to summarize to get a what we used to call in my business the 100,000 foot view of a topic and so if you want to really quickly learn something about it that's the kind of website that you can go to but 
we used to teach how to search with the, uh, the website tools. And one of the things was the understanding of, of how the system uses its uh, register for finding information. And that is manipulated. And even more so today, in the early days of the web, it was a lot easier because you didn't have all the commercialization that was out there. You very seldom saw ads and that sort of thing. But now, you go in for a simple, I, I go in and I search for something like, uh, I want a, for, a renter's form for a tenant that's going to be renting from me. Uh, and I type in the word uh, template renter's form. First thing is, I will get millions of websites to go look at. And they're ranked, but they're ranked by keywords and by other cues. And they're not always necessarily good. So you have to spend some time with it. And the good news is, is that there are some sources, resources out there that spend a lot of time saving you time. So again, as a parent with, with children at home, using the web for research and that sort of thing, you can't go wrong by going to the basic websites of NASA or uh, National Education Institute. Uh, uh, there are excellent resources. And there are people that are building uh, reference libraries of just those websites. And they're doing all that work for you. And those are the ones you want to go find uh, to screen the kind of information you're looking at. But the other advantage of, of this time is you can have uh, access to these tools and they're going to give you, again, opportunities to do things that maybe you weren't doing before. Uh, my experience with several students that used to come to our class was they all had access to these kinds of tools, but they used them just for pleasure, uh, playing games, Fortnite or whatever, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, there's, there's value in learning the problem-solving that comes with some of those products and, and, and programs. But it's helpful to have others who have assessed that and can direct you to other resources that are out there. And that was the problem I saw with the classroom environment. There was not a lot of direction being provided by the instructional world as to how to discern the good, the bad, and the ugly. That was what was really necessary. And taking the technology away is not an answer. Not at all. Taking the technology away is, is just forestalling an even more serious problem. Education is about teaching. And that has been my lessons learned from all of this outreach of the years of industry and so forth, that you, we, have a responsibility to understand the limits of the tools that are at our disposal. Now, with all of this being said, as I indicated, being sequestered or isolated at home, I, I, I really object to the term being isolated. With a computer and even a simple thing, a device as a smartphone, you are not isolated in any, any way or form. You have the whole world at your disposal. But who you call and what you do with that world, that's a different thing. And the balance of, of learning is in the other, the other skill set that's necessary, which is 
a lot of the FaceTime with the screen and the tablet and the phone and the computer is controlled and manipulated by software, people, organizations that are outside your control with other things, other agendas. It turns out that the good old-fashioned face-to-face that you do have at home with your families is the really important driving factor for that self-directed learning. And that means, yes, there comes a time when you turn it off and simple conversation, eyeball to eyeball, at the table, over a meal, just sharing um, my family, my children, from our past experiences, uh, these last couple of weeks, they've been spending time with, they, they have what they call a family game night. And uh, they used to do this even before uh, we had all this problem. But one night a week, it's game night, and they have a collection of games, and everybody in the family gets a different turn to choose the game for the evening. And when I was growing up, and when my children were growing up, playing simple card games, uh, I was weaned on cribbage, the game of cribbage, a game that was born of the Second World War, and... I taught that to my children, and now my grandchildren are curious about it. So, there are many benefits that can be derived from this period of time that we're going to have getting through this pandemic and this crisis. And while it's also certainly a wonderful opportunity to learn something about viruses and sanitation and disease and control, I mean, you can turn TV on any time and get a, a, a complete dissertation on, on what you should be doing and can be doing and so forth. These are lesson opportunities. And so once again, my counsel to parents to teachers, to anyone who is suffering through this time, is keep looking for those opportunities that are there to sit, to talk, to teach, and opportunities to learn. Those are uh, real inspiring words, Jerry, and, and I... I I started this podcast because uh, my wife and a lot of parents come to me and ask, what are we going to do for the next three weeks? I mean, five weeks. I mean, the rest of this year. And I feel like um, there, there's a misconception that there's going to be a unique solution for each and every single one of us. If we do A, then everything will be solved. And I really wanted to bring you on to sort of have you share with your experiences about how um, really technology is the answer instead, as you pointed out, technology is the tool. The answer comes from us contemplating the problem and then we actually invent a technology to... Um, solve that problem. Do you have any stories offhand that you can share where something like that happened, where you actually invented a technology to solve a problem as opposed to use existing technology to solve that problem? Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, there's one in particular that comes to mind uh, in my early days of uh, developing some of the contamination control technology. Uh, Frequently, we would uh, they would bring samples in from uh, air, uh, spacecraft systems. Uh, these would be propulsion systems or or whatever, and they would have uh, they would have flushed a fluid through it through the system. It's going through tubes and lines and valves and controls, and then the this, the model of solution would come into me, and I would filter it through a special apparatus and 
any particulates that were uh, in that solution would be trapped on these filters, these special filters we have. Then I would take the filter and I would put it under a microscope and we would try and determine how dirty or how contaminated the fluid was. And we did that literally by examining all the particles that were on the filter and counting them and estimating uh, how much contamination was in that sample. Therefore, we could calculate how much contamination was in the system and, and establish some kind of boundaries in terms of success for the engine to work and so forth. Well, it, it occurred to me that sometimes I would look at these particles and it was really wonderful uh, because they had different shapes, they had different colors, they had different sizes and so forth. And I began to see this and I said, well, you know, if I really look at that, can I figure out where that came from? And the most obvious things that happened was you would see a fiber and you say, well, that's a long fiber. Now, where did that fiber come from? Well, it's white and it's got this kind of shape and so forth. Well, long story short, I began to realize that by characterizing the contaminants I saw on this filter, I could actually begin to build a catalog. And there were other researchers in the field like myself that were coming to the same conclusion. And we did. We started building what we called a particle analysis catalog. And this catalog were pictures under the microscope of these small particles and components that identified them. And then through chemical analysis and other things that we developed, we began to say, oh, well, we know exactly where this came from. It came from this uh, material that's used over here in this part. It was the foundation for what we call failure analysis of the components that we were developing for the space program. It became the foundation years later for what is called forensics that are now used in police laboratories all over the world to identify sources of an evidence that is left behind from an event. Well, I, that, well, <laughs> of all the conversations I had with you, this is the first time I've heard that. That's awesome. It, it really was. You know, it was one of the areas that I really enjoyed uh, working at. Uh, and like I said, uh, uh, it, it, it's fascinating now to see how much when I watch a, uh, a TV program and a show and they say, well, were there any fibers collected at, this, at the crime scene? We can go find out who did the crime. And I thought, hmm, yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, I remember walking through Columbia Merrill Space Center, and there was an apparatus, and what uh, Ben had told us was that that's the docking mechanism for, um, I, I forgot what it was, but, but you also had a hand in that. Could you talk a little bit about that as well? Yes, you're talking about an artifact that we have at the Columbia Center. Uh, it's called the uh, Apollo Docking Probe. Um, the unique story behind the Apollo Docking Probe was in the early days of the Apollo program, NASA and the contractors were trying to figure out how we're actually going to do this. Uh, and up to that time, most of the uh, ideas were based on science fiction. The, well, you build a rocket and you fly it to the moon and then it lands on the moon, and you get out, you walk around, and then you get back on the rocket, and you fly back. Well, we began to realize that in the real world of cost and technology, it was not going to be one machine that flew to the moon and came back. We needed two machines. We needed one that would get us there and be our vehicle, transport vehicle, but we needed another one to actually go down to the surface. So that developed 
into the Apollo Command and Service Module, which was the transport vehicle that took our crew there. But it also was the Lunar Excursion Module, or the LEM, that would be the spacecraft that actually had to go down to the moon, let the astronauts get out, do their exploration, then get back and return back to the Apollo to come back to Earth. So, the biggest problem was, if you've got two spacecraft and they're in one machine, at some point in time, they have to separate and there's going to have to be this mating sequence where the astronauts go from one to the other. And so the design of the tunnel in the command module would mate with another hatch on the lunar module and the astronauts that would be able to crawl through the tunnel through the hatch and into the Apollo, uh, the uh, lunar spacecraft. Well, this necessitated, we have to figure out how do you have one spacecraft dock with the other. Our engineers, uh, one in particular that I worked with, came up with the design and said, we will use a docking probe. This special probe that I designed will actually be installed in the tunnel and then you will maneuver the spacecrafts together the docking probe will find its its target and then they latch together it's an ingenious device and it worked uh, now most of the docking probes that we used on each of the mission because they were so heavy on the ground these things weighed four or five hundred pounds but in space of course it was not a problem there was no gravity, so there was no weight. But we couldn't afford to bring them back to Earth. So just before we left the moon, we put the docking probe inside the, the lunar module, and then the lunar module was then separated and jettisoned to fall back and crash into the moon, taking the docking probe with it. So it's... There are no real docking probes from any of the missions that survive, save for the one that we have at the center, which is actually an engineering prototype that we developed and used for figuring out how it would work. And, and I want to confirm, uh, I'm sorry, what year was this again? Uh, this was in uh, 60, whatever, 65, 66, 67. So there was no YouTube that you could look at that gave you answers, oh. or there was no Wikipedia oh, that you yeah. could look at to find yeah. your answers. The best technology we had at that time for us uh, were pencils, paper, slide rules, and a few guys had calculators. <laughs> But uh, there we, we did have mainframe computers, but they were very, very complex and very slow and took a lot of time to work. So what do you think was the primary, I guess, dr drive that allowed you guys to solve the, the problems you had? It, it, was it the technology? Actually, not really. Uh, unless you unless you accept the fact that technology, by my definition, includes everything down to the pencil. Pencil is technology. Before we had pencils, you had sticks and sand and clay. Uh, but the technology, while it was assisted us, that was not what made and allowed us to go to the moon. It was actually the area of what is referred to as soft skills. And probably the number one, the number one skill, and I even suggest this to young engineers today, if you want to do invest in a skill that would make you the best engineer, take you to Mars, or take you anywhere, invest in communication. Because it was communication that really got us to the moon. There were thousands, 
hundreds of thousands of people involved in creating the machines of Apollo that took men to the moon. And no one person can lay claim to that achievement. And that means that as long as you've got more than one person, you need to know how to communicate. You need to know how to share. And so up until that time, most organizations, you had a hierarchy, you got a boss, or a board of directors, you have supervisors, you have workforce, and so forth. And we had all of that too, of course. But all of those people had to be on the same page, singing from the same book, pulling the rope in the same direction. We had to learn and understand her what it meant to be a team. Teamwork and communication is what took us to the moon and brought us back. And it's the same thing that is going to take us back to the moon or to Mars. Now, the advantage for today's generation of engineers is they have some new tools at their disposal that is going to facilitate that because it's going to be more complex. But they're also going to have better tools to work with. But they're still going to need those basic tools, the communication, the teamwork, and the leadership. Those are primarily what helps people learn and achieve their goals. Man, I'm I'm always left speechless uh, every time I, I talk with you because you have so much to share. I really appreciate you uh, spending time with us today. Um, oh, it's been my pleasure, Jay. And I hope that the people listening uh, really have a chance to enjoy this as well. Um, this is an experience that uh, not many of us uh, have to actually speak to somebody that's worked on. Uh, how many of the shuttles, Jay? All of them. Every single one. All of them. Yeah, all of the shuttles, all of the Apollos. Uh, building spacecraft were my business. Spaceships. As a matter of fact, the story, you've heard it, but I'll share it for your audience. One of the finest introductions that I ever had for a presentation was my son in the second or third grade at school, elementary school. We had a career day, and he asked me if I'd come and talk to his class about what I did. And when the teacher asked him to come up and introduce me, he shuffles to the front of the room and he says, my name's Steve, and that's my dad back there, and he works at the spaceship factory. <laughs> and to this day, that's the way I think of my career. I worked at the spaceship factory, and it was... It was the finest time of my life. Well, again, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Um, hopefully we'll have a chance to bring you back and talk about a few other, uh, share some of your stories. Um, in the meantime, remember, if you have any questions, I can also forward it on to Jerry. So visit us on our Facebook page and uh, type some of those questions and tell us what you thought about uh, this episode. All right, Jerry, thank you so much, and uh, hope you guys get some time to rest, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you, too, Jay, and I'll leave you with this thought. Remember, this too shall pass. <laughs> yes, it will. You have a good one, Jerry. You too. Bye-bye. See you, Before we head out, allow me to just quickly add my take on what Jerry said about technology. Jerry and I have been working with teachers for a few years now and when we do our professional development courses we don't touch on the technical things of STEM or STEAM. We both agree that technology is simply the tool and anyone can figure out how to use a tool. What we want to emphasize to the educators and the parents is that it's more important to find a need for the technology. The technology is simply a tool 
that's going to help us get to a particular goal. For example, if I handed you an alien object at this moment, and you take a good close look at it, and figure out by the shape, the weight, the feel of it, you realize it's probably something you hit a nail with. But after a while, you'll probably put it down. Why? Because there's no need for that tool at this moment. There's no need for that technology. Sure, you might play with it for a bit, but the thinking and the growing part won't happen until, say, a storm passes through and it breaks a window at your house. Now you have to board the window up with this new technology. That's when you're going to realize, wait a second, this alien object doesn't work so well in the rain. Wait a second, this alien object can put nails in, but it can't take nails out. It's good on wood frames, but not aluminum ones. Or it has a 10 minute capacity before it has to be charged. Or it works better if you put the nails in at 30 degrees versus 90 degrees. The need is what drives education, not the technology itself. Now, this is not to discourage you from using technology. Instead, I hope I can provide you insight on how to better use the educational technology you've been inundated with in the last few days. In fact, I'm already recording the next episode so that I can give you one very important resource that's going to help make the next few weeks much more manageable with you and your son or daughters. This is going to be released within a day after this one. As always, please like us on facebook.com backslash straightaconsulting and let us know what questions we can help answer, whether that be from me or Jerry or any of our future speakers coming up. The only way we're going to get through this is by helping each other and sharing our experiences. So that's my challenge to you. Post something for us. Tell us which direction you'd like to see the show go. Until next time, keep playing, thinking, and growing.